Welcome into the fan pregame Monday night on Sportsnet and Sportsnet 590. The fan, Ailish and Justin, kicking off the week with lots on the network tonight. A 90-minute show for us. Merrick Monday in a few moments. Colorado and Montreal on the network tonight at 7 p.m. We're going to chat about the history between those two teams. We're going to take a little blast from the past with our historian, Jeff Barrick, uh, and t- talk about a little bit what's going on with the NHL tonight and this past weekend. At 6.30, Mike Golick Jr. will join us to discuss the fallout of Super Wild Card Weekend, Cowboys' epic failure, Lions' first playoff win since 1992, which was an epic success, and then tonight's game, of course, Bucks and Eagles. And finally, at 7 o'clock, we'll have Smith & Jones. That'll be on Sportsnet 590, the fan, teeing us up for tonight's game. Raptors hosting the Celtics after a lengthy West Coast trip. I think they're just happy to be home at this point get settled in, get back to a little bit of home cooking here. Uh, we'll have them on after us at 7.30 p.m. on Sportsnet 590. The fans, so Smith & Jones will tee us up for the night. Of course, we've got our feelers out for what's going on in the sporting world. Uh, but, Justin, we're back in it. We had a big weekend. We had a seven-day work week for you and I at Scotiabank Arena both weekends, mm-hmm. uh, both nights this weekend. So, you know. No days off for us. Yeah, it was a busy weekend. 90-minute uh, show tonight. Looking forward to it. But everything's like wedged in the middle mm. of football. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's wedged in the middle of football right now with a game tonight and a game ongoing. But, yeah, uh, lots of good stuff to dig into. It was an interesting weekend for a variety of reasons at the NHL level and, and around the hockey world. And uh, we can get into that, of course, with our first guest on Merrick Monday. It's Jeff Merrick. Merrick, how are we doing today? I am well. How are you? Uh, we are doing pretty well. Okay, so we got the Habs and the Avalanche on the network yeah. tonight, Monday Night Hockey. This is an interesting one because there's definitely like a connection between these two clubs, but I, I don't know yeah. if that's fizzled a little bit. What does it mean to you when you think about Avs and Habs? Uh, I think of Nords and Habs because I'm that old. I think of all those great games and what was my my favorite rivalry of all time. I know people in Alberta will talk about the battle of alberta but nothing nothing quite compared to the uh to the wars on ice that were the quebec nordiques and the montreal canadians and it was it was more than just hockey it was you know it was hockey team versus hockey team it was uh, francophone versus anglophone it was brewery versus brewery it was it was like our very own sort of hockey culture war um uh, on on full display a few times a year and uh, to say those two teams didn't like each other is the understatement of the year. So when, when I think of, just because I'm older, I mean, I, whenever I think of these two teams, I, I go back to the fleur-de-lis along the <laughs> Quebec Nordiques jerseys. Do you think that lives at all in this uh, the present era of these two teams? I know the teams have changed, but the, the story is still written. Do you think that there's any connection when these guys get together and do play, and, and tonight we'll see it, that there is a little bit of a, hmm, remember when? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it probably fizzled out when, when Pierre Lacroix passed away, who was that sort of link to the Quebec Nordiques. And there, there had always been, you know, a, a very strong, you know, francophone component, at least originally, um, to the Quebec Nordiques. I mean, a lot of it obviously led by, you know, Patrick Waugh, for example. Um, but I, I think that, you know, maybe for some of the, some of the older fans, Ailish, who may recall the Nordiques and, Maybe that's uh, there's there's still some embers burning there. I know there are there is for me, but I, I think that it's been it's been pretty much extinguished by now. You mentioned Patrick Juan, and we were actually having this discussion off air, and we thought no one better than Jeff Merrick to ask. What would be Uh-oh. the the comp for that 
Patrick Waugh trade uh, in modern day, if there is even one, that moment, the energy going into it, the comments and the declaring you want out and that it happening and you're going to such wow. a... I know. It, we, we have one maybe example. We'll see if you can get there, but it's kind of unprecedented. Uh, I mean, it was pretty uncomfortable between Marc-Andre Fleury and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That 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 might be. I mean, it, it wasn't. I mean, listen, there was no love lost between Mark Andre Fleury and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Let's be up in front of it. Like, like I know that you know each individual, Jim Rutherford and Mark Andre Fleury, you know, played it off and, and played it off very professionally and said this is just business. And but uh, mm-hmm. trust me, this this was this this was personal. This one was not very well received. The thing about Patrick Waugh was, I mean, he made quite a public display of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was he was left out there. He was left out there to rot in that game against the Detroit Red Wings. Man, we're still talking about it to this day. That's how much of a how much of an effect it had. And in a lot of ways, that was that was the end. That was the signaling of the end of that Montreal Canadiens era of of being a successful team. Like that was that was the end of it. Like that was, we haven't seen, you know, a Montreal Canadiens team, you know, play to that level since, since Patrick Wall was there. So um, maybe Marc-Andre Fleury and the Pittsburgh Penguins comes to mind as far as goaltenders, you know, wagging their finger and saying, I'll, I'll never play for you. I don't know. Are you looking for goaltenders or just regular players? I mean, anyone, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there is something mm-hmm. like, again, we, we have our own context now uh, and what we, what we could dream about what might compare, but like Patrick Waugh was Patrick Waugh back then. Like, I don't really think, yeah, yeah I mean, you could like dream of something. You could dream of Sidney Crosby saying, hey, I'm not playing for this team anymore, but like, that's just not going to happen. I, I, it's just, I, I, if we put that story, we drop that into today's sporting culture and today's sporting world, oh. it would blow oh. everyone away and every other story oh. out of the water. If there was only social media back then in 95, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, you know what, maybe. Here's another one, just doing this. You know, there wasn't exactly much love lost between Martin St. Louis and Steve Eiserman in Tampa. Mm. I mean, that was, you know, when, when, you know, I originally left them off Team Canada for the Olympics. I mean, that was, that was pretty bitter. Those two didn't get along. Marty was a very proud athlete and an elite athlete and, and felt that he should be there. Um, and on the, on, you know, on the, on the first selection of the team. So maybe Marty St. Louis and Steve Eisenman in Tampa, that wasn't the best parting uh, in that organization. Eh, maybe, maybe you're right. Like nothing, nothing's going to come close to, to Patrick Waugh. I mean, that way it would think it was, it's on television. It's, it's mm-hmm. at the forum. Um, it's again, it, the interesting thing about it is it was against the team uh, in the Detroit Red Wings that for a number of decades was one of the great rivalries in the NHL. Like to me, there's two great lost rivalries, one, the Boston Bruins and the New York Rangers. Uh, that has been a rivalry that, you know, that, that, that Rangers Bruins rivalry in the late sixties, early seventies was one for the ages. And I still maintain that that Rangers team was one of the best teams to never win the Stanley cup. They should have at least won one uh, in that era. But uh, at, at the same time, Detroit and Montreal, Gordie Howe versus Rocket Richard. I mean, those those two teams going head to head for for so many years. That was a tremendous uh, rivalry, both in the uh, mainly in the as I like to call it, the solvent six um, or the arbitrary six. I refuse to call it the original six for petty reasons. Um, and it was in front of the Red Wings, and it was in front of everybody at the Bell Center, and the coach, and the manager, and it, it was and it was Patrick. It was completely emotional, Patrick. You know, wearing it on his sleeve. I, I still, I still wonder how history would would have changed if the Montreal Canadiens at that moment 
wouldn't have rushed to trade Patrick. Because don't forget, that trade happened pretty quick. If they had just said, you know what, Patrick, go home for a week, we're, and both sides back off, we're not going to make a deal while we're emotional, how different is history? You know, do the Avs win those Stanley Cups? Not a chance. And then how, you know, do the dominoes after that, how do they fall after um, the, the Patrick Waugh trade is not made? Everything is so far less emotional nowadays. It feels like it takes so long for big decisions when maybe decisions should be happening to actually happen. Uh, but there are differences uh, 30, almost 30 years later. I'm glad you mentioned Martin St. Louis because he had maybe the best quote the entire year over the weekend. He said, if it was my last day on earth and you asked me where I'd want to be, I'd want to be in this building, that being the Bell Center on a Saturday night. Not to be too morbid here, Merrick, <laughs> but I wonder, yeah. your hockey-related last day, what would that look like? Uh, you know what I'd probably be doing? I'd probably be, like right now, as we're talking, I'm outside of the Ajax Community Centre watching, just before I came back to the car to do this interview, uh, watching my, uh, my, my 2012 skate for an hour and a half go through practice. I would pro- my happy place is watching my kids play. So whether it's uh, my oldest kid is a two, uh, 2010 or my youngest son is a 2012 or watching my daughter either do dancing or swimming, uh, take your pick. I'd either be at a dance studio uh, or a pool with her or a hockey rink or a baseball diamond with my two boys. But as far as, you know, professional goes, I mean, I've always, I've always said, like, I agree with Marty San Louis. There is nothing in hockey. Like, if you are a hockey fan who understands history and things like, you know, the ghosts of the forum. There is nothing like 7 o'clock Saturday night, Montreal. After the whole, like, the thing about Montreal is the day of the game, like, you walk down the cobblestone streets of old Montreal, it's what everybody is talking about. You go to bars, you go to restaurants, you go to cafes, you go to shops in, in beautiful old Montreal. They're all talking about the game. The whole day revolves around the game. And you get to the rink, and 7 o'clock hits, and the lights drop, and they hit cold play, and you start to, like, even, like, honestly, just saying it right now, like, I'm just getting the, the, the shivers on my forearm just thinking about those moments, and the, the Montreal players come screaming out, and you think of all the great hockey players from the past, and how that fits into the context of right now, and right now, at that moment, it is the center of the hockey universe, and it's the only, it's the only place that you want to be watching a hockey game. Like, everybody needs to have that experience. There are a lot of cool NHL experiences. Vegas is a trip, right? Seattle uh, uh, puts on a marvelous show as well. There are a lot of places. Nashville, glorious, fantastic. But there is nothing that compares with being at the Bell Center on, uh, on on a Saturday night in Montreal, um, just like the forum previous to that. You know, I've always said that they, they only do, you know, big ceremonies. Um, they, there's only two places in the world where they do ceremonies properly, where they do big events properly. One is Buckingham Palace, and the other is the Bell Center. Like, that's it. it's those two places in the world. So Marty St. Louis saying that, I, I, I could not agree more as far as, a, as far as an NHL experience goes. But for me personally, like, don't, don't worry, I think about death all the time, so I have thought about this one. It's, 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 it's watching my kids play. Well, uh, I've been to Ajax Community Center a couple times. You could you could sell me on that cool, funky lobby yeah. with all the staircases. I think they still got a pool right. in there. Like 
It's a cool barn. Yep. It's a, it's unique. <laughs> so you, you'll get some of that experience today. Uh, we're talking to Jeff Merrick, of course, of the Merrick Show and 32 Thoughts, a podcast, uh, head of Colorado Montreal at 7 p.m. Uh, so let's talk about the Colorado side of it. Uh, McKinnon's, yeah. McKinnon, Taves, and Makar, we got to see them on the weekend. Uh, up close and personal, Justin and I were at Scotiabank Arena for the game, and my goodness, it is, it's all it's, it's hyped up to be. And even Sheldon Keefe said it's a league better. It's, it's not the NHL. It's whatever's above that. So what makes that yeah. trio or what makes those superstars just so electric, make them pop every night, and what a treat it was to get to see them over here, but hopefully not, not too many times more because the, the Leafs look like a league below them. <laughs> I, I don't know that we've seen, like, they have such differing skill sets. First of all, uh, as far as Kale McCarr goes, I've always maintained that if Connor McDavid were a defenseman, he would be Kale McCarr. Like, that's how highly, like, he's the best defenseman in the NHL. Like, full stop. Like, there are, there are defenses that will have better seasons. You know, we can quibble about Adam Fox and Quinn Hughes, et cetera, Victor Hedman at times. But uh, Kale McCarr is the best defenseman in the NHL. Like, and, and, and I would say it, it, it's not even close. Like, consistently, year in, year out. Uh, he's McDavid on the blue line. Um, Devon Taves is perhaps the most underrated because he sort of lives in the shadow. Um, of, of Kel Bakar, probably the most underrated de- defenseman, uh, certainly on that team and maybe even in the NHL. As far as Nathan McKinnon goes, I don't know about you, but like, I always think about this. You know, I, I watch Nathan McKinnon play, and all I can think about is a rhinoceros. Yeah. <laughs> like if, if, if you taught a rhinoceros how to skate, it would be Nathan McKinnon. Like when he starts, when he gets a couple of strides and he starts to pick up speed, like you've seen this before, you too. Like players bounce off of him. How often have you seen that? Like, do you not get the think he is a rhinoceros on skates, mm-hmm. going to the net, going hard, like good luck trying to keep up with them. But the one thing that all three of them have in common, and I think, you know, when he's healthy, Gabriel Landeskog might even be at the top of this list. And he's not going to come back unless, you know, the Avalanche get on a deep playoff run here. Um, you know, so you might want to put Landeskog into that conversation as well. These players compete hard. Mm-hmm. Like they'll, they're, they're, I think what what um, uh, what Sheldon Keith is getting at too, like when you have the marriage of that skill set with a work ethic that is unparalleled, and we've all heard about you know Nathan McKinnon and you know yelling at guys for having a you know a Snickers bar in their gym bag or whatever it is, like he is super intense. And the thing about those three players, and Crosby is like this too, they set a work rate that if you don't even try to approach it as another player on the avalanche, it's almost like you're shunned. Like there is a standard that these athletes set for everybody in the room. And that's why I always feel that Sidney Crosby should be in the heart trophy conversation for what he means to that team and the standard that he sets. And the good thing about the avalanche is they have two, maybe three, maybe even four when Landis Cog is healthy players just like that. Uh, from a rhinoceros to a fellow moosehead, Jonathan Drouin makes his return to Montreal <laughs> with uh, the Colorado yeah, Avalanche. That was good. Looking back at... Po- oh, very good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Merrick. And Ailish. Uh, I, I could not believe that Drouin was in Montreal for parts of six seasons, or uh, uh, the complete seasons, but of course, uh, you know, it was a bit up and down at times, to say yeah. the least. How would you sum up the experience in Montreal for Jonathan Drouin? I mean, we know what it means to players born in Quebec to play for the Habs and how much pressure there is. Yeah. Uh, and, and what do you think the expectation will be uh, tonight uh, from the fans, from the atmosphere, from the Canadians themselves? Like, tee up Jonathan Drouin's return to Montreal for us. It's an interesting one. Um, you know, this this shows you why... You know, Vincent LeCavalier was terrified about the idea, and he almost was, uh, of being traded to the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, 
This is why when he became a free agent, you know, Daniel Briere chose not to play with the Montreal Canadiens. He later did, but initially, um, you know, was, you know, said uh, thanks, but no thanks. The pressure, like we always think of Toronto as having the most, the most pressure uh, of any market in the NHL. I think it's Montreal. And not only is it Montreal, but when you're a French Canadian athlete, the pressure on you to perform in Montreal is sky high. Now, if you do well, the rewards are many. The rewards are numerous. You become one of the immortals. And Montreal Canadiens fans take care of you. And your place in history and your place at the Hockey Hall of Fame is cemented. It's established there. Like it, it can be if you're at the if you're the top of your game, Montreal Canadiens fans love you like no one else. Like it's impossible for Saku Koivu to show his face at the Bell Center and not receive a standing ovation. You know, play, when they love their players and their players work hard for them, look at every time Carey Price shows up with that black cowboy hat, the place comes unglued. <laughs> it pops It pops like the cork out of a champagne bottle, right? You play hard for them. You're successful. They will love you forever. Oh, but, there's but, a shady, but, but there's a shady side to that amount. If it, if, it, if it doesn't work, it can be the most intense, play like this like pressure filled intense awkward slash awful place to be i remember brian burke would always say you know the, the the worst place to be a to be a manager uh is in montreal and i said why is that and he said because when you're bad when you're dumb you're dumb in two languages <laughs> when you make a mistake you make a mistake in two languages it's everything toronto is and then doubled that's what Berkey always said about Montreal, and I, and I agree with him. I would say being a goaltender is tough in Toronto, but being a coach uh, is almost equally tough because Sheldon Keefe's name now being floated around is, is the seat warm, is the seat getting hot? You know, three blown leads in a row for the Maple Leafs, calls his players out, then changes the lineup and, and still loses. Uh, kind of the things that people ask for, he did do, and unfortunately isn't getting the results. So I wonder for you if you think that that conversation is heating up or if that seat is heating up. No, no, he just signed a new two-year extension. I know that it's not to be all and end all, especially not with, uh, with, with the Maple Leafs. But um, I kind of get the feeling that, you know, this is a Maple Leafs team that, you know, Brad Treliving is maybe having some misgivings about and saying maybe we don't, maybe we don't after all, have the team this year. Like, you know, general managers always say the same thing. What am I going to do at trade deadline? The players are going to decide what to do at trade deadline by their performance. Like, you look at the Vancouver Canucks. Like, that is a team that is saying to Patrick Galvin, we deserve something. We deserve something at trade deadline. You did not think for one second we'd be here, not in your wildest dreams, but here we are. Now, what are you, Mr. General Manager, going to do about it? Quite the opposite seems to be happening uh, in Toronto. And I know you might look at some of the, you know, the, the boxcars and the pedestrian numbers for the, uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs and say, look, they're tucked into a really nice spot here, but, you know, you feel the onion a little bit and it gets pretty ugly. This is not a team that any of us really think Brad Treliving capital W wants. So I don't know if they make a decision on the coach until Brad Treliving has provided that coach with the horses that he wants. And I think that probably starts with the blue line and probably at least one more net minder. So I know there'll always be noise. People want change. If you're not going to get it through trades, you're going to get it with a coaching firing. You know, the Maple Leafs need the dead cat bounce of a, of a new coach coming in. Look what it did to Edmonton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I, I'm, I'm still not there in, 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 in thinking that Brad for living is, is considering making a move with the head coach.
Uh, last one before you let you go. Uh, you mentioned that the Canucks were demanding an acquisition with their play. Uh, what sort of acquisition do you expect them to make, Merrick? Like, what would put this team potentially over the top, given their standing right now in the NHL? You know who everyone's talking about in Vancouver? Who's that? Can I lead the witness? Which uh, which organization did Patrick Galvin and Jim Rutherford come from? Pittsburgh Penguins. Who is on an expiring contract? Top six forward with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Ooh. Not Sidney Crosby, name, not Evgeny Malkin. Gensel. Jake Gensel. His, his name rhymes with Jake Gensel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. there, uh, there's, there's all kinds of smoke there um, mm-hmm. between, uh, with, with, uh, with the Vancouver Canucks and the, and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I think a lot of it is going to depend on you know, where Kyle Dubas thinks his team is at. Uh, how Jake Gensel fits in, but there's there's more than a few people in Vancouver. And, you know, Elliot made the point on the podcast this morning that, you know, Vancouver's about to get... Like, Vancouver's always noisy. I mean, the fans are certainly always noisy. It's about to become rumor central. And I think at the top of that list is probably Jake Gensel, the Pittsburgh Penguins. It's interesting because uh, Kyle Dubas hasn't made many moves like that, but he might be forced to do something like that uh, if the Penguins are going to... Retool once again around Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. Uh, enjoy practice, Merrick. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, again, we're making this a tradition on Monday, so we'll talk on Monday. Yeah, I, I enjoy the morbid questions, more of them. I used to work at a cemetery, Parkland Cemetery in the West End. It was some of the happiest what? years of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I loved it. What'd it you do fun. there? Were you a grave digger? Uh, we helped. Uh, I would dig graves, pour concrete for uh, tombstone foundations. We would cut grass. Um, and the, and the upper body strength is evident today. So I mean, things, things things work out. <laughs> I used to have a great tan. I was in <laughs> shape. It was awesome. Worked outdoors. Felt great. Oh boy. And now I talk for two hours a day. Okay. <laughs> We've got great stories, and you'll take them to the grave. All right, Jeff. Uh, we'll chat with you next week. Appreciate your time. <laughs> People are dying to get in there. Right? Oh, dying to get in there. All right. Good one. Good one. Good one. Uh, Jeff Merrick of the Jeff Merrick Show and 32 Thoughts Podcast. I think he's probably used that joke a few times. Uh, I got credit. I mean, you said Mooseheads was good. Yours, take it to the grave. Very good. Did you not hear his? People are dying to get in I there. thought yours was okay. slightly, slightly better. Just Don't want to diminish the guess, but I thought yours was really good. The fan pun game. I mean, pregame. Okay. Let's focus. Best bets for tonight. Um, I'm going to go to the Celtics-Raptors game, which we're going to continue teeing up uh, on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590, the fan, after we take a break. Raptors... They had a tough end to their lengthy road trip. Yeah, that Utah Jazz game was a disaster. I'm sure they're just happy to be home, which I, I don't blame them. Um, so I'm going to go for a little parlay here uh, with quickly over 27 and a half points, rebounds, and assists, and the over in the Raptors game. Uh, Quickly's been picking up 28 or more points, rebounds, and assists in four of his seven games with Toronto. Uh, he traditionally has played pretty well against Boston in the past. Uh, 23, 38, and 24 points in just three of his meetings since 2023. Obviously dealt with the Raptors on all of those. Um, I kind of expect to bounce back from the Raptors tonight, or, or at least to elevate their play. The Celtics are one of the best teams in the league, of course. So the over as well, I mean, the Raptors, and we're going to talk about this with Smith Jones, their offense has been reinvigorated. They look completely different. Obviously, Boston can score. Uh, two teams are going to be putting um, a lot of shots up. So I'm going to parlay the over and quickly himself to get over points, assists, and rebounds. Yeah, no Jalen Brown for the Celtics, but no Jakob Pertle mm-hmm. for the Raptors. I, I don't know if those two things are correlated 
really in any way, but I guess rim protection for the Raptors may be lacking. But again, a big score for uh, the Celtics not available for that over. But again, this is more about what the Raptors are doing uh, than maybe uh, it hits uh, the over for you. Uh, I'm going to tonight's uh, final game, I guess, of Super Wildcard Weekend. A couple things. I like the Eagles. I think it's a buy low on the Eagles here. I think everyone's down on the Eagles, and I think deservedly so. However, they're playing a Bucks team with a quarterback who's probably banged up more mm-hmm. than their quarterback <laughs> is in Baker Mayfield. I, Baker Mayfield, I think, has a, a litany of injuries right now, so I expect the Eagles to figure out a way to get by them, and you only have to lay the three points. Devontae Smith, over 67 and a half uh, receiving yards, a Hertz TD. You could probably parlay those all together and get something decent out of it. And looking at the abs or seeing the abs up close and personal mm-hmm. on Saturday night, I can't just not bet on them to beat the Montreal Canadiens tonight. So buck line plus 120. Uh, those are my bets for tonight. All right. On the other side of the break, uh, we'll chat with Mike Golick Jr. Talk about that super wildcard uh, weekend, which is ending tonight. And we've got P- PWHL three-on-three rosters to announce for NHL All-Star Weekend. That's all next on the Fan Pre-Game. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the fan pregame, Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590. The fan, Ailish and Justin, super wild card one, one, one. I keep saying Wednesday. It's not Wednesday. Weekend uh, was a busy one for us. We were at both Leafs games on the weekend. So we were doing some, you know, streaming and watching, but we consumed it all. And it was, there was a feast. We had the pleasure of watching Joe Bowen, by the way, watch his Green Bay Packers. That's that was a, that's very, something that people could pay exhilarating. for. Exhilarating, yeah. Uh, that's a pay-per-view program right there. Yeah. Uh, he was quite happy last night uh, as the game got delayed and he got to watch more of his Packers. Uh, but there's some people that are very, very upset on the other side of that. Uh, but let's bring in Mike Golick Jr., of course, uh, to chat about this upcoming, this past weekend and the uh, consequences of them. And Mike, thanks so much for jumping on. I know there's something else going on right now, so you're okay to have a, a split screen in terms of what you're looking at. But let's talk about the Cowboys and that epic fa- uh, failure, because I think that's what most people are still chewing on as of today. Like, how do you start to unpack what the consequences of something of that magnitude might be? Uh, I think first by factoring in who is going to be the ultimate decision maker uh, on those consequences. And when you realize it's Jerry Jones, you understand that you're not dealing necessarily with a (laughs) rational actor at this point. Like you're dealing with someone who is the consummate showman and who also has a tremendous amount of ego built into what he does. Like, remember, this year was finally the year where he swallowed enough pride to allow Jimmy Johnson to join the Cowboys ring of honor. And so if that tells you anything about how this man operates, I don't think he's going to take kindly to the most points allowed in a postseason game in Cowboys history coming in the year where the roster was supposed to be the one that got them to the championship, whether or not, especially defensively, it was actually capable of that and how that reflects on Jerry Jones. I'd imagine there's going to be some heads rolling because what other choice does he have right now? He's the guy that ultimately controls everything that goes on in this organization, and he's not going to fire himself. I think that's so interesting that you start with that because now a lot of dialogue is Bill Belichick is going to go take over uh, the head coaching role with the Cowboys. But when you think a little deeper, like, could that relationship actually work with Bill Belichick and Jerry Jones? Because they are very different people, and I think they might want different things. Like, Bill Belichick knows the Patriots' way, and I don't think that's going to be the way that he might get things if he does go to the Cowboys. So do you think that's even a pathway that they could, you know, work harmoniously together? Uh, I think desperation can cause a lot and that depends on how desperate Jerry is. And 
Also, what else is available? Like, if you told me, hey, you could have Jim Harbaugh or Bill Belichick at this point, you'd probably take Jim if you were if you were Jerry Jones, given a number of factors in the equation. But, uh, you know, there is the portion of it. Hey, listen, Bill Belichick doesn't like talking to the media anyway, so Jerry can just get more of the microphone time that he loves so much. Bill Belichick comes in and would be the architect of a defense that desperately mm-hmm. needs help right now in Dallas. Now, most of that's personnel-wise, I think more so than anything schematic necessarily with Dan Quinn, but Bill Belichick certainly comes in with pedigree on that side of the ball. And then depending on what they want to do with that monster cap number looming with Dak Prescott, it would give Bill Belichick a quarterback to work with in a way that post Tom Brady, he has struggled to find. So I can find ways to make it work, but ultimately that's going to be about, I think just as much of what goes on in the current coaching marketplace, because we've got an off season with as many quality candidates, both uh, retread former head coaches and up-and-coming coordinators as good a crop of those uh, that I can ever remember. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Dak Prescott there because, uh, you know, as we've figured out in the last couple of years, uh, Bill Belichick wasn't able to do the same things without a quarterback. And I think one thing you have to wonder after that game is, does Dallas have the quarterback? I mean, this is all moot. If Dak Prescott can't get it done when it matters the most, uh, do they have a quarterback problem in Dallas? Like, can da- didn't Dak Prescott win a Super Bowl in your eyes? Uh, Dak can win a Super Bowl, but like, you know, quarterback problem is always interesting because I guess it's relative to what, like Mm -hmm. you have a quarterback problem in Dallas. If you think that he's supposed to be Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen Mm -hmm. or one of these guys, then yeah, you have a problem because he's not one of those. Like, that's just not who he is as a quarterback. He's not going to be Lamar Jackson. He's not going to impact the game the same way, but we saw this year with the roster you had around him and with Mike McCarthy calling plays, you had by far his best season. You had a borderline MVP season for a lot of it. Now it seems to be an MVP season, a little bit closer to what we got from Brock Purdy or what we got from Tua Tunga Bailoa, where maybe it's a little bit more dependent on the parts around him than you thought when you were giving Dak Prescott all that money. But uh, so, yeah, I think we have to define what the parameters are for that, but they have a problem because right now they owe him $60 million next year and they haven't figured out how they're going to smooth that out. And that, to me, plays a big role in all the decisions that are getting made right now because that, to me, feels unstable. You can't proceed with that. And going into this year, you'd have thought, hey, you like Dak Prescott enough to pay him all that money. You've got this roster built up to win now because that's what Jerry's charge is. I was a little bit surprised they didn't decide to extend him a few years, smooth out some of that cap pit, so a little bit of the financials for some of the other veterans on that roster would be easier to work with. So let's say Belichick comes in and it's Dak next year under center for the Dallas Cowboys. What else do they need? Like, what 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 can't be fixed through only Bill Belichick alone? Do they need a really cutting-edge offensive mind to lead that offense, to change the way things are done? I mean, they look great when they are great, but sometimes they look like, they, like and when they're on the road, but uh, they, they look like a little bit lost. Uh, do they need to change something offensively? Can you trust in Bill to run an offense or to be the head coach uh, for a team that's going to be running a modern offense? Like, would they need to pair him with someone for this to work? Um, I mean, realistically, Bill would probably just bring Josh McDaniels back in because he's available. And we've seen him run an offense that's coherent enough with the right quarterback at the helm. I don't worry about that as much. Like, there's some things, you know, schematically on offense, uh, you know, with Ferguson, the tight end, you hit gold this year and certainly have help there. You've got to, I think, probably add another back with Tony Pollard to give that ground game a little bit more punch. But 
honestly, the offense was great for the majority of this year. C.D. Lamb looked awesome. Defense, you need guys that can stop the run. You need linebackers and D tackles. You tried to draft Mozzie Smith out of Michigan. That didn't net you nearly enough. And at linebacker level, you never really went out and meaningfully acquired bodies this offseason that were going to be built to stop the kind of run games that you encounter at the top of the NFC, to stop the kind of run games that Philadelphia is going to try and send your way, that the 49ers are going to try and send your way on and on down the list in the way that a lot of this side of the football league in particular has orchestrated itself. So offensively, yeah, listen, I think a more consistent run game would certainly help, but your problems are on defense and they were largely personnel based this season. Um, yesterday was a nice emotional day for Lions fans. Uh, first playoff win, of course, in 32 years. Fans crying in the stands, uh, which makes people emotional that don't have a vested interest in the Lions, like myself, Dan Campbell's speeches. It just was an all-around success story and a relief, I'm sure, for those in Detroit. What was the most impressive thing about their performance, about their win for you? Uh, I, I think for me, I've been so impressed down the stretch of this season with how the defense for the Lions has acquitted themselves. They came in with a bullseye on their back this season during the middle of the year when injuries were popping up and they were still coming together with some of the new parts. It looked like it might be some same old Lions there. And instead, mm-hmm. we saw a group up front that's been really physical. Lee McNeil, their defensive tackle, who shed a bunch of weight this offseason, reshaped his body former NC State stud, has really been a difference maker along with Aiden Hutchinson along that front. And you saw both of those guys able to really harass Matthew Stafford behind an offensive line for the Los Angeles Rams that's been a really strong unit for the majority of this season. So I thought that group in particular and the way that they were able to play the offensive line has been one of the strengths for this Lions team, especially when they've been healthy and Frank Ragnow has been in there at center. So uh, just uh, uh, what a complete effort it's been in building to this point. Like we've had examples of other teams like the Houston Texans who came in and were an overnight success this season because they had so many parts come together at once to shake off the bad vibes. For the Lions in the Dan Campbell era, they've had to build this slowly over time, going through seasons where they lost a bunch of those close games, narrowly missing the postseason last year, and all those scars have finally gotten them to the point where they've got enough of that built-up time under task to get over the hump, and it was really cool to watch. So Matthew Stafford wins the Super Bowl uh, a couple years ago, and it almost seemed like that was his last act because it just didn't go like he was hurt, and it didn't. Go, it was like, oh, that was maybe that's it. Maybe Matthew Stafford got his one Super Bowl just in the nick of time. Uh, but he comes back this year, and it wasn't very clean. Uh, but it was pretty impressive uh, what he did in a loss yesterday. Obviously, he didn't go his way, but I was really, really impressed. Enough so to think and believe that he has another run in him. Uh, do you see it the same way? Is he still an elite-level quarterback who just had to kind of shake off uh, a year of injuries uh, and a year of kind of a retooling for the LA Rams? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at what their roster was coming off the Super Bowl. They mortgaged their future to go and win that Super Bowl, and it worked, and they had to deal with the financial and draft capital implications of that on the other side, and they said, screw it. It's worth it, and it absolutely is. When you get to hold the trophy, everything you did that led to that point is worth it. And yeah, last year, injury plagued. Their offensive line was like historically injured and all those things added up to a bad season. Matthew Stafford, when he was healthy this year, played like top five quarterback ball. He looked incredible. He looked lean. I know he was a guy that took good care of his body this offseason, played through some injuries this year, but behind that offensive line and now with a team that's committed to being a downhill running team and the emergence of some incredible young draft picks like Kyron Williams in the last couple of years, Puka Nakua is a rookie this season. I think it re-energized this offense. It gave them a little more depth than just 
hey, Matthew Stafford, you were brought over here to be our drop back pass answer for the Super Bowl season. Now they've mixed in a little bit more of the under center play action stuff from early in the McVay time here. They've got all that pre-snap movement that helps them out. And they got a quarterback that's still got a howitzer for an arm who seems able to make a lot of those fun throws that we ooh and I at all the time. So I think the Rams have a lot to be excited about going into next season because their quarterback found the fountain of youth this year and they hit an absolute nails rookie draft class. Uh, so the story of the playoffs so far is probably the Dallas Cowboys uh, capitulating as they did. But if we're being optimists, if we're looking forward to the future, I mean, C.J. Stroud and Jordan mm-hmm. Love putting on epic performances uh, is definitely what you'd like to cling to. Uh, is that the future of the NFL right there? C.J. Stroud and Jordan Love for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, C.J. Stroud's been uh, you know flirted with an actual MVP campaign before injury took him off the field for a couple of weeks during the season. He took the last game we saw of him in a college uniform against Georgia and made that every single week against the best competition in the world when it comes to this sport. So uh, he's incredible, incredible poise, incredible ability to evade in the pocket. He's got great tools around him. I think Houston's another team that did a good job with a lot of parts coming together at once. Protection up front, the job they did defensively to play complementary football with Will Anderson Jr., their other top draft pick, and the way that that front came together. Uh, to make them really potent on both sides. And then the Green Bay Packers proving once again that they know how to evaluate and develop quarterback better than any franchise on earth. And now hitting three straight times on, let's start at base level, like Jordan Love can be a a high-level starter in the NFL. Whether or not we're going to see him as a pro bowler perennially or a future Hall of Famer like the last two guys that came through there, they have identified and found another high-level starter at that position, which most franchises go you know, a decade without, usually at any given time. And so uh, it's been incredible to watch the confidence they both play when. Obviously, mobility is a big part of their game. But just under pressure, they never seem phased. They find a way to get balls off while they've got guys in their lap, while they've got the pocket collapsing down around them, and have both lifted up young skill groups that have been growing right alongside them. So the leadership and the ability to take that town and athleticism and harness it into real, like, true blue quarterback play right early on is really impressive. Yeah, the success story has been awesome to follow this season, and now uh, they're both going into uncharted territory. And if you look at what potentially could be the next matchups for both, uh, if it's Houston and Baltimore, likely at this point, Bills are leading 21-10, but I'm going to... Just hold my breath on that one. Um, and then, of course, uh, San, Francisco, San Francisco hosting uh, Green Bay. Which, which, I guess, matchup and which quarterback itself will have the best opportunity to pull off what would be an upset? Yeah, at this point, I would probably say it's Green Bay and San Francisco. I, I just think Baltimore in the last month of the season has reached supernova status. The offense finally caught up. You know, with its quarterback, Greg Roman came in where, excuse me, uh, Todd Munkin came in replacing Greg Roman and it installed this downfield passing offense. And we saw it took a little bit while for the receivers to catch on with that, quite literally, with all the drops on that team. You had the injury to Mark Andrews and they had to adjust yet again to how things were going to go there. But all through that time period, you had the quarterback play like an MVP and you had Mike McDonald's defense operate like the Death Star. And so I think those things are going to make it extremely difficult, even for this talented Texans front and uh, quarterback. But uh, on the other side, the 49ers looked a little bit more vulnerable down the stretch than the team we saw in the middle of the season. It's still the overwhelming favorite. But if you're going to make me pick a side, I would probably pick Green Bay. 
Uh, probably a lesser talked about story given, uh, you know, what happened Saturday night and it's been pretty noteworthy since is the Kansas City Chiefs beating up on the Miami Dolphins. And I know the uh, the temperature was frigid. The guys from <laughs> South Florida didn't fare so well. But it seems like the Chiefs have kind of rounded into maybe the best version of themselves for at least this season. And if that's the case, the best Chiefs of this season, is that enough to beat a team like Baltimore? Um, on their best day, no. Like, on the best day, Baltimore is still mm-hmm. the better team. But uh, you saw the benefit of experience there. This Miami team was also just too beat up to party defensively. They were a terrible matchup for the Chiefs, who had struggled on the edges to protect Patrick Mahomes. They got Donovan Smith, their starting left tackle, back after missing five games with a stinger, which certainly helped. But it helped even more that the Dolphins had to go out and sign Justin Houston in the last week because all of their pass rushers had gotten hurt with season-ending injuries down the home stretch of the season. Combine that with the fact that, yeah, the Dolphins' offensive line had been through the meat grinder most of the year. Their skill position players have been beat up, and I just don't think they were built to party like that in the cold the way Kansas City was. You know, you're going up against you know Steve Spagnuolo, who's arguably the greatest modern bespoke defense designer in the postseason, and he went and gave that Miami Dolphins offense all the things that give them trouble, taking away the deep stuff, making Tua pat the ball and hold it for a little bit longer. They can absolutely hang with anybody on their best day, but I do worry that, all right, when you're not playing in the fo- frozen tundra against a team that banged up and you've got real pass rushers on the other side and an offense that can go more blow for blow for you has a little bit more to offer you up front on the ground, I do wonder then if some of those issues for Kansas City that we've seen pop up towards the back half of the season especially are going to be too much to overcome still. Okay, I got a challenge for you. Uh, get me excited for Eagles Bucks tonight. Sell me on watching this game instead of going to bed early after consuming so much football and hockey and basketball over the last couple of days. Why do I want to watch this one? This is the only game where literally anything can happen. That's true. Like, <laughs> not any of us that are going to try and predict what goes on <laughs> in a game where one quarterback's got a dislocated finger, mm. his top wide receiver and AJ Brown's probably going to be out, and the defense has had no interest in stopping anybody for a vast majority of the year and only got more hurt in a week 18 game that ultimately ended up meeting nothing is going up against a team that won the NFC South, which should not actually be a reward for anybody <laughs> as their quarterback nursing sore ribs. And it's like, oh, by the way, Baker Mayfield, the guy that went cross country on two days notice and managed to win a game for the Los Angeles Rams last year against the Raiders. So we're dealing with wild cards left and right. Mm. And if you don't like that playing basically whack-a-mole with a football game, <laughs> and I don't know, I'm going to have a tough time selling you on anything. After no, that. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> I like chaos. I like chaos. So that, that's, exactly. this is like a game full of chaos. <laughs> uh, last one for you, Mike. We'll get you uh, to the uh, rest of the game. Buffalo leading Pittsburgh. At the moment, um, if you're running a team and you have a coaching vacancy right now, Mm. and I guess you can include Belichick in this if you'd like, but who are you going after? Who's the hottest coaching prospect available right now who definitely needs to have a job, a high-profile one at that, uh, this upcoming season? Yeah, I I think the the simplest answer is probably Jim Harbaugh because, man, I've seen the ball go through the basket a lot of different ways with that guy as the head coach with what he was able to do in reviving that Stanford program, albeit with a generational talent at quarterback what he was able to do once he got to the NFL in very short order with that 49ers roster getting to a Super Bowl. And then obviously at Michigan, and it's twofold. It's it's the style that his teams operate with, especially now. I think we're seeing during this playoff run a real 
premium paid on physicality along both lines of scrimmage, which is an absolute hallmark of Harbaugh teams, but he also hires really well. You're looking at two of the best coordinators in college football that have been on his staff there at Michigan. The way he treats his staff clearly endears a lot of loyalty, and so I think you can trust him to make a lot of those decisions, and everywhere he's been, come in and make you immediately competitive, even if it might take a couple of years for you to ultimately get to that top prize. He's highly motivated being the competitor that he is, knowing the last thing that he has to accomplish as a coach is winning the Super Bowl at the highest level of competition for this sport. Uh, It should be a fascinating offseason, but of course we've got uh, the playoffs to get through (laughs) first. Mike, we appreciate you coming on with us during... (laughs) <laughs> a playoff game in the NFL uh, that takes uh, uh, some serious uh, dedication to our show. So we appreciate it. And we'll, we'll hopefully chat soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me guys. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's Mike Golick jr. Of the Gojo and Golick pod. Also a college football analyst. He's got a lot on the go. I don't think he missed much in the game. I think there was just one field goal. Okay. So they waited for the action. For he had the eyes going. He knew where, <laughs> he knew where the TV was in his him. office. I don't blame him. Um, Yes, so the, the, the score of that is still 21-10 for it the is. Buffalo Bills. Uh, lots to go through. Um, we'll pivot a little bit off of football for a minute because we got something fun to announce, which we get to do sometimes. Okay. What do we, we got? We get to do it again. Um, so the in a couple of weeks, we're going to be down uh, for the NHL All-Star Weekend. Obviously, Sportsnet's going to be covering a lot of it. We get to be down there for some of the action up close and personal. We'll have some different duties. It's going to be great. Um, and the Canadian Tire PWHL three-on-three showcase is going to be that Thursday night. It's going to have um, a 20-minute game for the girls. Uh, And it's kind of like their big moment to have their marquee experience. Everyone, all eyes on them. Uh, Two teams of 12 players, 10 skaters, two goaltenders. And we get to announce them for you in a moment here. Uh, But to tee it up, they have a combined 146 Olympic and 46 World Championship medals and 17 NCAA Division I championships. So I was not invited. Decorated crew. It's an easy way to tell you that. Um, so the two rosters will be um, named after Billie Jean King for one of them and Alana Kloss for the other. They are obviously both advisory members and longtime advocates for quality in women in sports. So Team King will have Savannah Harmon from Ottawa, Megan Keller from Boston, Ella Shelton from New York, Lee Steckline from Minnesota, Kendall Coyne Schofield from Minnesota, Hillary Knight from Boston, Alina Mueller from Boston, Kelly Panic from Minnesota, Marie-Philly Poulin from Montreal, Blair Turnbull from Toronto, and Renee Desbien from Montreal, and Aaron Frankel from Boston. So those are your two net miners at the very end. Okay. Team. A lot of Boston there. It's a pretty good team. It's a bit more of an American feel. You'll mm-hmm. see. And uh, Team Kloss will be Aaron Ambrose from Montreal, Renata Fast from Toronto, Jocelyn LaRock from Toronto, Alex Carpenter from New York, Emily Clark from Ottawa, Taylor Heisey from Minnesota, Brianne Jenner from Ottawa, Sarah Nurse from Toronto, Abby Rock from New York, Laura Stacy from Montreal, Nicole, Hen- Nicole Hensley from Minnesota, and Emeryn Smashmeyer from Ottawa. The two goaltenders, the very ones there. So 24 players that were selected. Uh, by the PWHL member clubs include 17 of 18 of the inaugural free agent signings. Uh, the one uh, Micah's Andy Hart can't play due to injury. So that's kind of the structure because I know it's bit, it's early on in the season. How are we to know who the All-Stars are yet? There's only been 10 games played. Well, they started by including all of the in- inaugural PWHL signings and then seven of the first 12 selections from the first ever PWHL draft. All the first round picks so that's the way that this was done originally obviously they haven't played enough hockey yet to really know but going by resume going by the names i think you picked a pretty good roster putting you on the spot but who you got team king team Kloss. which one's uh popping Hmm. for you right now uh in terms of 
you got affiliations on I both know. sides. Like, this is tough. It's a, it is a bit of an American versus Canadian type feel without fully going USA versus Canada. Um, if I had to put my money now, um, I'm going to go with Team Claus. Okay. And that's the Team Canada-like feel? It's got a little bit more Canadian feel, but they do have Taylor Heisey, who's going to probably be the, the MVP of the season so far, uh, and also my best friend, Laura Stacy. <laughs> so I have to pick her. Uh, but a bit, and, and Ambrose, friend of the show, of course. So I'd say a bit more familiarity with them. they got uh, some pretty big names. Sarah Nurse and Taylor Heisey are some of the, like, the young up-and-comers, of course, and already have made it in there. But on uh, Team King, I mean, you've got Hillary Knight and you've got Marie-Philippe Poulin, two players that never play together. So I think that's a really interesting mm-hmm. dynamic, right? They're always the two going head-to-head that are the you know arch rivals of each other. To have them on the same team will be really interesting. I don't think I can remember them ever playing on the same team for anything, like a, a fun charity thing, a scrimmage. Like, they don't play together. Mm. So that is going to be awesome to watch. I'm looking forward to it. No, that'll be cool. Uh, and they have, like, uh, an interesting relationship, right? Like, there's definitely an immense amount of respect between mm-hmm. the two. We've seen them have kind of moments behind the scenes after, you know, the rivalry. Uh, it plays out in front of us. And those two seem to have some sort of, like, veteran kinship Definitely. thing that goes on. So it'll mm-hmm. be cool to see them play together. Maybe they'll play on the same line there. That'll be uh, wow. that'll be fast and furious. 20 minutes, you said? One period? 20 minutes. It's a 20 minute. I, I don't know if there's probably an intermission in between, maybe 10 and 10. Uh, but I'll get to be involved, and that's exciting. So SportsCent's going to be down there. We're going to be down there. Uh, we'll be able to be up and close and personal, maybe be part of the broadcasting. I'll have to stay tuned for that. But there are still tickets also for sale for NHL All-Star Thursday. You can go to Ticketmaster, uh, the official ticketing partner of the NHL. And there's still tickets for the NHL um, All-Star Player Draft, which is that same night, the NHL Alumni of the Man year honoring the 1967 Maple Leafs. And, of course, the PWHL 3-on-3 showcase. So, lots going on. We're very excited. Don't have official ranking here, but uh, we debuted the new A-list, which was your power ranking Mm. of the PWHL teams, the six teams. If you're going to ask me on the spot, Minnesota is one and very much... They're running away with it right now? They're They're currently number one. Far ahead, the best team for the first, I guess, three weeks of the season? The most impressive makeup I've seen of a team so far. Not even three weeks, just two weeks. Yeah, and uh, this week, Boston's in town on uh, Wednesday night. I'll be there. Uh, The girls are in town to play Toronto. We got so a game nice. to see up tomorrow. We do. Uh, we've got a game tomorrow. It's New York and Montreal. Oh, by the way, I just got to say, I got to call out the hockey gods. Montreal's home opener sold out. Marie Philippe Poulin, overtime winner from Laura Stacy. Call reviewed. Goalie interference. Boston wins at OT. That can't happen. Even the if hockey gods can't happen. Even if you're happen. MPP, you got to play by the rules. No, they, they have, we have need a review on that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Smith and Jones will help us tee up. The Boston Celtics and the Toronto Raptors. That's next on the Fan Pre Game.